0: to the Seahawks 360 Podcast, as always. I'm your host, Candace Haggins, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Today is officially Sunday, July 24th, which means one thing. We are three days away from Seahawks training camp, and I'm really excited. Finally, some time for football getting ready for the season, officially kicking things off. I love to hear comments for you guys in Seattle about some of the things that you see. Um, Love to mention them. I'd I'd even shout them out here on the show. If you tag us at Ethos Seahawks and uh, tell us about your observations and what you've seen on the berm. But um, a lot to be excited about, a lot to get into. We've already done a lot of the breakdowns of some of the battles between uh, different groups where I receiver rooms we've already talked a lot about that. so go back and check out the podcast on the toughest competitions or where the competition at and a lot of those episodes you'll you'll hear the breakdowns of my opinions on how i think those battles will go so with that said i'm not going to do a training camp preview per se but what i want to focus on is the keys to success What is the blueprint for Seahawks' success? For so many years now, with Russell Wilson leading the helm, the expectation has been Super Bowl or bust pretty much every year. And so that is how success has been defined. But this year, everything is different. And so what does does success look like in phase one or year one of a retooling slash rebuilding year without Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner? So... We'll get into it, break it all down. And without further ado, let's talk Hawks. So first things first, it's important to establish that the Seahawks are considered bottom feeders in the league. And so when you're talking about success from a national perspective, that's just going to be probably winning more than four games. I mean, the, the bar is really low. I think that most of the national media expects this team to be in the race for the number one draft pick. And I just don't think that that's the case at all. I know that any Pete Carroll team and teams far less talented than this one has put together at least seven wins. Pete Carroll is a guy that gets his guys to play for him, that motivates his guys to play for him. And that's on, like I said, rosters that haven't been talented. If you go back and look at some of those original Pete Carroll rosters that he had, it was rough. It was brutal. And so you're not going to be able to convince me that a team with Jamal Adams, with D.K. Metcalf, with Tyler Lockett, with Rashad Penny, if he can stay healthy, Ken Walker Jr. coming in, being able to help your run game, Austin Blythe at center, who is a very competent Uh, you know, decent, at least center at the position. There's just too much talent on this team for you to tell me that this team won't do anything. And I know Russell Wilson is a huge loss, but I just feel like this world is underselling this roster. Quandre Diggs is a two-time pro bowler who just continues to get overrated and overlooked at every time. It's just at every turn. And I just feel like we're going to catch some teams off guard. I think the Seahawks will play hard. And teams will think they can come right in and roll over on the Seahawks. And that's not going to be the case. I just think that's how things are going to go down. So, I got five keys to success. Based on Seattle Seahawks' media and fan perspective, I think the fans, I think most of the media really feels like this roster is at a better place than most people give it credit for. Mostly just because they don't know the team outside of Russell Wilson. So, with that being said, key number one is to, is to push the over. If you guys know anything about betting, you'd know that when that Las Vegas will put out odds for an over and under. They'd pick a number of, in this case, games that the Seahawks will win. And it'll be something like 5.5 and it'll be... Like the actual odds on Seattle right now, it's 5.5. Will Seattle have over 5.5 wins, which means six wins, or will they have under 5.5 wins, which is under five wins? So I'm going to say that key number one is the Seahawks need to prove the over. I'm a betting person. I, I I do get into sports betting on FanDuel in particular. And I'm definitely putting money on the Seahawks being able to win more than six games. If you guys go back to my schedule release, I predicted that the Seattle Seahawks can win eight games. And I stand by that. As I go through this roster, it's very possible. It's not even hard. They can win six games, even if they don't win every game that I think they can win. So let's just take a quick look at this. Shall we? Here are the teams that I feel confident that the Seattle Seahawks can be, that their roster is better than right now. The Falcons, the Lions, with all respect to Jerry Goff, I, I I think our roster still is better than that. Upcoming Lions team. I will say this. I know the Lions will do more than people think as well, but I just think overall, with our coaching, experienced veterans that we do still have on the roster. I think we take the lions. I think we can take the jets and I think we can take the panthers. Those are gimmies. Oh, and the giants. Don't don't forget the giants. I also think that we can take the giants. No question. So, those are five teams off top that I think that they can beat. They only need to beat one of these three teams. The 49ers the Saints, or the Cardinals. I feel like they can beat all three. I'll just be honest. I feel like it's likely for a couple of reasons. When it comes to the San Francisco game, that's week two, right after the game against the Broncos, and it's at San Francisco. Seattle has always played San Francisco well. Even last year, which was a terrible year by all Seahawks fan standards, We the, The team swept. They swept the 49ers, who were considered an upper-level team still. They're at their struggles. But to sweep them was pretty phenomenal. And I don't, I don't think that this team without Russell Wilson is going to be able to sweep the 49ers. I mean, that's possible. But I do think they can take a game. And if there's a game that they're going to take, in my opinion, between the two matchups, they have another matchup with them. In week, looks like week 14, 14, 15. Yeah, week 14. In week 14, there's another matchup. I think by then, the 49ers have a lot to play for. They're going into their playoff seating. I just don't think they're going to lose that game. If they've got Trey Lance, I think he'll be in a... Sort of mold, sort of finding his way at that point. I think he'll be kicking on all cylinders at that point. If it's Jimmy G, I think, like I said, they'll be in the middle of a playoff push. And I just don't think without Russell Wilson, they'll be able to beat them twice. But they'll be able to take him week two. When things are questionable, when if Trey Lance is a starter, he's going to be very raw. I think that Gino or Drew can take Trey Lance. Despite Trey Lance's talent that I believe he has, I just don't think that he's developed enough, especially in week two, to be able to put them over the edge to beat them, no matter what the talented roster looks like. So I think they can beat them week two. If it's Jimmy G in week two, if they don't trade Jimmy G, if Jimmy G stays on the roster, I think this defense has done well against Jimmy G. They've been able to really hold him um, to... Limited yards, he's not had great performances against the Seattle Seahawks. He really struggles against this defense. And I know it's a new defensive scheme, but I'd expect that to carry over. So whether it's Jimmy G or Trey Lance or whoever it is, I just feel confident that in week two, the 49ers are not going to be solidified enough as a team, as a roster. There are too many questions going into their offseason and into their training camp for me to feel confident that they'll hit the ground running. I don't think that's going to be the case because even if they keep Jimmy G as a starter, it's sort of, I, I think it's going to mess with his confidence. He's gone through a whole off season of hearing trade rumors of being given permission by the team to seek a trade of him knowing that he's not really the wanted option on this team. And sure his teammates may rally around him, but that's not an easy thing to come by, especially if you're looking over your shoulder because you know with any given mistake, or anything that happens. Trey Lance is right he's he's right behind right behind you that they're looking to put him in and they're looking to get him some play time. And with him coming off that injury, I just there's no way in either scenario that I feel that the Seahawks can't take that roster. So, that six wins by itself. And I'd argue two additional are possible. Now, I'll start with the Saints game. The Saints game will be tough. That is a tough defense to play. And I'll throw in this caveat. I only feel like the Seahawks can beat the Saints if Geno is a starting quarterback. And I know that sounds really strange. Candace, why will you say that? Drew Locke is, has a much better chance of being able to compete against the arm of of Jameis Winston. I know. I know all that. But one thing that comes to mind is that game that the, that the Saints and The Seahawks played when Geno did start it was a close game Geno kept them in that game um it was a very defensive heavy game for sure and I thought Geno made just enough moves I think he just got a tough break sort of there at the end and I ultimately think with the improved defense that they could win that game I just do I also think that they've seen this Saints team And they know exactly how it looks with Gino on the helm. They know exactly what plays worked best. They know exactly what plays didn't work. And they were really very much so filling out their way in that process at the time. And so I think with preparation, with Gino on the helm, I think that the Seahawks can, can take them. Now, for those who feel like it's Drew Locke, and that he could take them. I understand the argument that Drew Locke has the arm talent to compete to compete with a Jameis Winston. And to be honest, both of them have a propensity for turnovers, and they have yet to they they have yet to really prove that they can that they've kicked that habit. Officially, they've showed flashes of being able to not turn the ball over so much and be able to make better decisions. More so, Jameis Winston than Drew Locke, but it's still a question mark for them both, and so. Uh, That's a question for sure. I think it's, I'm not going to say it's impossible for the Seahawks to win and Drew Locke was a starting quarterback. I just feel like I've seen Geno against this defense and it's a tough defense to play against. And I just think him coming in with more preparation, the team coming in with more preparation, I think it will see a better, probably even more free flowing. I think it was. A bit of a stifled game on both sides offensively. I even can see a more free-flowing offensive game and Geno still being able to compete in that battle. So, that's my take on that. I understand why some might, uh, might disagree, but I think more people might agree with me on this one. Generally speaking, the Cardinals start hot and they finish slow. And I've got a lot of questions about the Cardinals this year. Because DeAndre Hopkins is suspended for the first six weeks and... Kyler Murray without DeAndre Hopkins was, quite frankly, a pedestrian version of himself. And part of that did have to do with injury that he suffered last year, but a lot of it had to do with just not having Hopkins available. And yes, they did get Marquise Brown in, they brought him in, and he'll be a weapon to help, but I'm just not sure that's enough to really be the horsepower behind the offense, so to speak. And so, with no DeAndre Hopkins, he will still be gone when the Seattle Seahawks play the Cardinals for the first time in week six. Let me double check that. Yeah, week six. It'll be the last week before DeAndre Hopkins comes in. And it'll be a home game. I think that's a golden opportunity for the Seattle Seahawks to beat them. I think that's – if they're going to beat the Cardinals, in my mind, that's going to be the time. I don't think they beat – DeAndre Hopkins, Marquette, Marquise Brown led with the, both of those guys as an option. And I'll tell you one thing, too, that I think will make the difference when it, when we're talking about this Cardinals matchup is tight ends have historically gotten, you know, really good yardage against the Seahawks. And I think it would be a game ordinarily that Zach Ertz will be able to uh, really create more of an impact and perhaps offset some of the pressure that be on Marquise Brown. But I don't think that'll be the case because of our new defensive strategy. I actually feel confident, and even though I haven't seen it on the field yet, just strategically, if they execute the 3-4 defense properly, it should still contain Zach Ertz and allow for multiplicity in guarding Marquise Brown, be it double teams or what have you. I think it gives them a lot more versatility, I think it gives different looks for Kyler. And to be honest, I think it confuses him a little. Keep in mind, when we're making these predictions, people are game planning, especially early in the season. They're game planning for, they, they may know that Seattle's changing their defensive scheme, but they're not going to really know the different looks that are coming at them. And I think that's going to be an advantage to the Seattle Seahawks. So key number one, take the over. Win over six games. I'm 100% confident that they can do it. Hopefully, you guys are too, or at least optimistic that that's possible. So, with that said, let's move on to key two. Key number two. So, I mentioned earlier that we have a new f- defensive system as a team. And I think that's one of the important things to see, that the 3-4 defense is effective and that it works. And here's how I'm going to define Effective and successful for this upcoming year. One, you want to see a significantly less average for yards per game. Last year, the Seahawks ranked 28th in passing in yards per game allowed. Now, there were 12th in points allowed, but the problem was, it was this bend don't break where teams could just dink and dunk all day long down the field. And then the defense would hone in. They they had great red zone defense, and they just prevent them from either getting any points at all, and sometimes they'd even prevent teams from getting field goal from getting a field goal, which was great. But it was a historically bad defense because of how many yards they were just giving up, and it wasn't because of the players. It was just the scheme. Ken Ken Norton Jr. had a lot of the cornerbacks playing off coverage, they play five yards off of the receiver, which would allow easy third down conversions and just continue to extend drives for the opposing offenses. That's something that needs to stop. You're going to allow yards. That's just the NFL. But if they could be somewhere middle of the pack, I'd say with yards allowed, top 15 would be a great start from one year to the next. To me, if the Seattle Seahawks are top fifteen in passing yards allowed, to me that says that the that the defense is working. Especially if they can maintain top fifteen when it comes to points allowed. So offsetting, not giving up one for the other, not allowing a lot of points because of the new defensive system, true success would be maintaining not exactly the bend but don't break, but maintaining your red zone defense while Correcting your passing defense, passing coverage abilities, and versatility within that. And there's one more other important thing that's important to consider when you're talking about is this defense a success. And that's the use of Jamal Adams. Is this defense best suited to complement Jamal's Adams' skill set where you're getting the most out of him? He is now your highest paid player on the roster. You traded the absolute farm to get him on this team and then spent two years trying to figure out how to use them. He's now entering his contract extension. It's time for this, for him to be in a defense for the Seattle Seahawks that puts him back on the trajectory that he was on before the trade, which was basically hall of fame. And I start to say that he hasn't been successful with us. He had a uh, all pro selection with us in 2020. He broke the record for most sacks in a season by defensive back all great things but that you you didn't really feel the impact of Jamal Adams as a weapon and he needs to get back to being that kind of weapon that defenses have to not only game plan for but consciously watch out for throughout the game where you have to keep your eyes on him and really use him as a chess piece as a defensive weapon that he was brought on this team to be. They brought him on, Pete Carroll said, to be a defensive weapon. And we just haven't seen that kind of dynamic, take over a game kind of play. I personally would like to see at least two games where Jamal Adams is absolutely dominant and just puts puts his stamp on the game. That's the kind of thing you want to see from him. You want to see from me, have him grow in his pass coverage. So if he can get one or two interceptions along with, I'd say about seven sacks. That's a great use of Jamal Adams. If you can get tackles, if you could put him in the right position where he's getting tackles for loss, he's coming downhill, and he's still you know, growing in coverage, but you're mostly using him for what he's best for, and that's attacking downhill. That's exactly what you want to see from Jamal Adams. And if this defense can help bring Jamal Adams back to that tier, that level of play, then I think that it's another way, those are three ways that you can determine if if the defense will be a success for the Seattle Seahawks this year. And speaking of new systems, what's important here is key number three, and that's that Shane Waldron's offensive system proves to work and that he proves to be a good offensive coordinator. That's important for a couple of reasons. This team officially invested, especially in this draft, in personnel that were better fit with the Shane Waldron offense, linemen who were more mobile, who were better at pass protection, those type of things that Pete Carroll has never gone for, for, you know, just, just of his own fruition. I think that has a lot to do with wanting to complement the offensive system, Austin Blythe, another guy who is going to get out and he's better in those zone running schemes that's more what the Shane, Shane Waldron offense is built around. And so if Shane Waldron does not prove to be a good offensive coordinator or the system does not prove to be a good fit for this team, then that's just going to set the team back rebuilding-wise because then you got these question marks. I think at this point there's already some mint matching, at least on the offensive line, in terms of like Damian Lewis is more of a, a people mover, a mauler type of guy when you've got more mobile guys now in Charles Carlson, a Lucas, who are not that way. Phil Haynes, I would also say is more of a people mover. Um, Gabe Jackson is good at pass protection, but they're using him as a people pull as a people mover at the right guard at the right guard spot. And you guys have heard me talk about that. How much I disagree with that. I'm not going to get into that today. That's a topic for another podcast. I've already done it, but with that said, I don't think this team can afford to not have this system work and have to reevaluate this personnel I mean people they just drafted, they invested some high draft picks, some some quality draft capital in personnel that fits this system. And to start over would be like I said, it set the team back at least at least a couple years in my mind because then you' got to get personnel to fit. The new system, and even if Pete Carroll decides to go with a similar system, every offensive coordinator is going to want things done in a certain way. You're hopefully going to be bringing in a rookie quarterback, and so then you got a new cor- you got a new rookie learning a new system with an maybe experienced or not experienced offensive coordinator. The what the, the wide receivers don't know the system, so they can't help the quarterback really grow because they are still trying to learn and feel their way through the new, new system them, themselves, that's just not ideal. That's not ideal. I think this team needs stability, and I feel like it needs for, in order for this rebuild to be quick and to not be drawn out, everything else in terms of systems, in terms of coaching, and I'd say even front office right now, needs to maintain the same at least for the next two or three years, so that you can truly evaluate your quarterback properly. Because if everything is flip-flopping the new quarterback, I mean, that's what everybody's saying about Baker Mayfield, right? He had four different head coaches and four different offensive coordinators. Stability is important when you're bringing in a new coordinator and you're bringing in a new system and already have the new quarterback come into a system that's established, that's proven to work if they would just play within it, that the wide receivers are familiar with and can help, the, help, help their quarterback out even more, if those things are already in place, it empowers your new rookie quarterback or whoever the quarterback of choice is versus starting over and, and really, like I said, starting over. That's sending you back. So here's how Shane Walgen can prove that he's a good offensive coordinator. One, I think it's going to show a lot through the run game because the reality is teams are going to expect the Seattle Seahawks to run. Pete Carroll is a run-centric coach. Everybody knows that that's his mindset. That's what he wants to do. You're not sneaking up on anybody with the running game. So it's going to require being efficient and innovative when it comes to different schemes, formation. Can you get your Team to execute it. One of the things that Shane Waldron was brought on to help with is to help marry the run game and the pass game, where the formations would look the same, where the even the first few pre-snap motions or reads would look similar, but that the opposing defense wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a run or a pass. That's going to be critical, to still maintain some level of unpredictability despite its reliance on the run game. If Shane Waldron could successfully do that, that would speak volumes to me about his potential as an offensive coordinator. It'd be almost Kyle Shanahan-esque in that Kyle Shanahan, you know he's going to run the ball. You know he's going to do it with multiple running backs, but you don't really know how? And sometimes you know how, but it's still hard to stop just because of how he has been able to formulate his his formations, his schemes, his run fits, all of that, right? And I'm not saying that Shane Waldron has to be Kyle Shanahan. I don't think that that's true. That's too much to expect or to ask for, though it would be great. The reality is he just has to, like I said, make sure that this team can sustain A great run, a good running game. Enough of a running game to be able to open up the field for Gino or Drew to be able to get passes downfield where they're not just getting everything in the box and you're not forcing your quarterback to have to chuck, you know, for long yards. Basically, playing outside of their strengths, you want them to be balanced. You want them to be explosive plays, but you want the explosive plays to be set up because of the threat of the run. That's how Pete wants the system. And I think Pete will be happy and pleased if Shane can effectively do that. It's not easy to have a system built more on intermediate routes, on more uh, middle-of-the-field routes, and still have a good running game and allow for deep passing. That's integrating all of those things is important and imperative in the signs of of a good offensive coordinator. I also think, that he can improve as a play caller. You want to see some improvement there. There were some times where it was obvious that it was his first year. Some of those play calls, the timing of which, the situations with, with which they were called were questionable at best, and you understood that it's his first year, and he's learning and he's growing. But you want to see less odd moments. You want to see more appropriate calls for situations. You want to see it make more sense. And I personally would like to see the calls flow a little bit more where one play builds off the other. And it's sort of a overarching theme, overarching buildup and not just kind of random call and random call. If he can do that, in my opinion, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter what the numbers look like, but you gotta understand that the quarterback situation is not gonna be looked the same. So I'm not gonna say that his success is gonna be determined by how many passing yards Geno or Drew Locke has, or how many turnovers or inter or how many interceptions or touchdowns that they get. I think that would be the wrong way to look at Shane Waldron's like what what he brings to the table. Cause I think until you can get him a, a quarterback that fits the system, it's a little hard to evaluate. But like I said, if he can effectively do those things, I think you've got the right guy. And it's just a matter of finding the quarterback to best fit the system. Okay, on to key number four. And that's going to be establishing the foundations of an offensive line. Now, I don't expect Charles Cross nor Abraham Lucas to really, I don't expect them to be top tier. You, what you expect is to see flashes, you expect to see progress throughout the season, and you want to end the season feeling like these two guys will be able to to be building blocks for the offensive line. you love to see Damian Lewis thrive if they're going to keep him at left guard. You'd like to see him thrive at that spot so that you don't have to address that in the upcoming draft. It's going to be really important no matter what the decision is at quarterback, that this team have a I'd say top 10 offensive line potential. That's just what they're going to need. If they're going to depend on a game manager type of point guard system quarterback, it's important that they be able to protect him. They can't take for granted, even if the quarterback has mobility, you can't take for for granted that mobility because I think it builds bad traits. We all sometimes were frustrated with Russell Wilson's hero ball syndrome. And and some of that was his own mindset and, and, and just how he thought. But I also feel like some of that was because of the position that the front office and the coaching staff regularly put him in. They put him in hero ball situations, especially I think about from 2015 to 2018. They put him in hero ball situations all the time. It was essentially run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, Russell come save us. And a lot of that had to do with not only the play calls on the field, but in the offense the offensive line. We're not going to really invest a lot of capital or money into the offensive line, but Russell will save us, right? I mean, I feel like that was the mindset, and that's why there wasn't the investment in the on the offensive line, the way that Russell and fans wanted, it improved over time, but only gradually. And, it, and at best, it was always mediocre. He never had a top ten offensive line, and I think that was a mistake. It's a mistake that I hope they realize that even if they draft a quarterback with mobility, that you it's got you've got to protect him. That's going to be critical, and so you want to see that. Some of the pieces that they drafted, some of their young pieces um, are promising and really will be able to be the foundation of the future because also those, again, will be spots that don't have to be addressed moving forward. And it sort of expedites the rebuilding process. I think if this team plans to be good in the next two to three years, they've got to establish a foundation for offensive line this season. And then finally, speaking of development of young talent, key number five, This team needs to see its investment in its rookies from the 2020 class, from the 2021 class, breed results now. For them to be able to step into these new roles and be able to shine and become, they all don't have to become stars, but you want them to be meaningful contributors to your team to varying degrees. Players like. Daryl Taylor, you hope, can become a double-digit sack guy. You hope he can become a difference maker at the position. He's shown the ability to do that. But that's a guy that you really want to see become a budding star in this league. And he's shown flashes and capability that he can. He's got some growing to do and doing some learning to do. But you hope that he, with the work he put in in this offseason, that he was able to work on those things and become a better all-around um, pass rusher because of it. Trey Brown. You hope that his injury does not hold up his athleticism too much. You hope that he's still able to be the cornerback, the aggressive and quick-witted, good instinct type of cornerback that you saw from him in flashes when he when he played as a rookie. He had a really standout rookie year. I mean, he just he looked comfortable out there. He looked in place. And granted, it was a small sample size. But I was really excited about what we saw from Trey Brown, and you want this injury not to derail that. Sometimes with it, um, I think he's got a, a patellar tendon injury, which is sometimes tough to come back from. Some guys don't come back from that, and, and sometimes it can steal your athleticism. And so that's definitely a thing to watch for if he doesn't come back the same it won't necessarily be the fault of the front office per se, but that's just another thing. And I and I will say at that position, they've got Kobe Bryant, they've got Tariq Woolen, who you hope works out in terms of young talent behind Trey Brown. So even if Trey Brown doesn't work out the way we hope, it's not exactly boom or bust, but you'd really love to see some young depth at that position. Especially after going through years and years of it being sometimes barren looking. And then Jordan Brooks. Jordan Brooks, you want to see him continue to ascend. He had more tackles than Bobby last year, and I think they were more impactful tackles. He seemed to have more tackles for loss. He's on a great trajectory, and you really want him to continue to really prove that in this new role of defensive leader and play caller that he can be sort of a – he's not going to be Bobby Wagner, of course, but you want him to – Fill in the role of Bobby. And I think this guy, this if there's a a young man to do it, I think it's Jordan Brooks. You want to see him, I want to see him become a star. He doesn't necessarily have to be a pro bowler, but you just want to see him produce star-like numbers. Be impactful, um, be aggressive, and be multiple. I think that Jordan Brooks can be used in blitzes. I think he can be used just in coverage. He could be better in coverage, but... I think he's growing. I've seen some progress from him in that area. Can he balance that part of his game out um, to where he's has a liability at that point? I think if he can do that, then he actually definitely has pro ball in his future, in my opinion. He can be one of the better linebackers in this league. And then Kobe Parkinson. We don't talk about Kobe Parkinson a lot, but I think his role is important, especially because Will Disley, while he was able to maintain health, all last year you just never know with him you you don't want a guy with that sort of size and speed and ability to be underutilized and that's exactly what it's been some of it because of of the coaching staff just not really wanting to depend on him in a great role and some of it's because he's been dealing with foot injuries on and off. So you really want to see Kobe Harris Kobe Parkinson, I'm sorry, put it together put together a year of health And I think his main – if he can just prove to be a great red zone target for our incoming quarterback, you just want to see him be a meaningful contributor. He's one of those guys who you're not hoping that he becomes a star. You've already got Noah Fant. You've already got Will Disley. So you just want him to be a complimentary contributing piece for this tight end room in a system that I think will highlight tight ends and and tight ends will become more and more important in this new offensive system. And then finally, I mentioned him earlier, Damian Lewis. Can he develop at left guard or can they bring him back to right guard? But what position can he feel? Even though he doesn't exactly fit the Shane Waldron scheme, I think he's talented enough, especially with what he showed his rookie year at right guard, to really still be a young foundational piece for this team. He is excellent at the run game. And when you're talking about a team that wants to emphasize the run game more – I think he's elite at it. If they would just play him in position, but either way, can he can he be an interior guard for you on one end or the next that you can build your future around, where you only have to worry about the other guard spot in center, right? Those only two. If you they, they can get those two positions in the next upcoming draft, and that will solidify your offensive line. Those are the type of things that can make the difference between a four or five-year rebuild, and a two, three-year rebuild. It's those types of things right there. And so you really hope that you can get a lot of promise out of the young guys. So those are my top five keys for success. That's what I think will determine how promising this season is. There are some things that people really have, have identified as keys to success that I don't. For example, Drew Locke being the franchise quarterback, I don't really feel like That's the key because for me, then you've still got to pay him. I'm not saying that you've got to pay him a substantial amount, but you're going to pay him more than you pay a rookie. And I also think even Drew Locke at his ceiling is still somewhat flawed. I'm not sure if he ever becomes this elite player. I I can honestly see his ceiling as being a Baker Mayfield type, which to me is, you know, average. And, and it's just, it may just be me because I'm not super high on Drew Locke. I just, I just see a ceiling as Baker Mayfield-esque at best. And that's just not something that I want to invest in personally. But also I, I don't want, I feel like if you, if the team is going to bring Drew Locke back, it's probably not going to be on a one-year deal. If he proves that he's quote unquote, their franchise guy, like some people are hoping to me, I think that means he warrants a multi-year deal. And in my mind, in a draft that's as deep as it is at quarterback this upcoming year, do you really want to duplicate the Matt Flynn situation where you bring in a rookie quarterback and you just sign a multi-year deal to, eh, granted, Drew Locke's not going to be nearly as veteran as Matt Flynn was, but you've already got this veteran that you've signed to this multi-year deal, and you bring in this rookie, and now you kind of wasted The multi-year deal and I'm not saying the rookie that they bring in is going to be Russell Wilson and immediately take over the team but I just think that whenever you're trying to invest in a rookie quarterback to invest dollars you know significant dollars franchise guy type dollars in Drew Locke for multi-year it sort of it sort of offsets the ceiling and the important growth in development, I think, of that rookie. Because I th- I don't think the Seahawks are going to draft a particularly raw player at quarterback. Did- Pete Carroll's looking to win now. And so they're going to look for quarterbacks who are pro-ready. And if you're already going to target that, then why would you bring... You know, I- I'm all for competition, but if you're paying him starter-type money, then he's expected to start. And I think that just... It seems like it serves two purposes in my mind, so that's why that's not a key to success. It's not even what I would feel is a best case scenario for the Seattle Seahawks. Some people feel like a key to success is the playoffs, and I may be alone in this. I love to see the Seattle Seahawks in playoffs. It's always great. It's always fun. But after years, and I mean years of frustration from a fan base about going to the playoffs and not making a deep enough run. It is a little bit ironic to me that that's the goal for some people this year, to make the playoffs, even though they really don't have a chance to make a real run. The team is currently constructed is not capable of making a real run at best to, I mean, they'd shock the world if they won a game. They'd shock the world if they make the playoffs from one, but they'd shock the world if they won a game. Nobody's really taking the Seattle Seahawks as the roster is currently constructed this year, seriously in the playoffs, nor honestly, should they. Too many rookies, too many young players, too many unknowns. Just not enough elite-level talent that's fostered and solidified itself yet. Now, the following year could change that, but with this upcoming season, I just don't see them. They're not going to be able to make a Super Bowl-type run. That's just not what the team is. If you're being realistic at all, that's not what you can expect from this team. And so if that's the case, to me, making the playoffs, but being a first round exit, only hurts the long-term ability to quickly rebuild this team. And I'm not saying the team should tank. I'm saying they should compete. But I feel like that sweet spot for me is about seven, eight games. I think if they get the 10, 11 wins to make playoffs and then and then lose, I just think it hurts the ability, like I said, to build the team. If you can get that 7-8 spot that still potentially puts you in the top 10 for a pick, and I think that's all they need is just, you know, top 10 pick, picking an elite talent, hopefully at quarterback, but even if they went with another position and decided to get a quarterback in a later round because this draft is so deep, I'd be okay with that too. But either way, you want to be able to address multiple multiple positions at this point at an, at an elite talent level. Now, past this draft, I don't think that that's nearly as much of a concern. I think if all things go well, if these five keys to success prove themselves to be true in this past season and you go into this upcoming draft Falling somewhere about seven, eight wins, get a top 10 pick, or you can trade into the top 10 with your extra pick from the Denver Broncos. I actually wouldn't prefer them to do that, but if they chose to do that, they could do that and really help round out the rest of this roster and fill in some of the additional holes. And then you can make a free agent signing here or there to really solidify this group of pretty good mix of young core and, and veteran talent that exist right now. So to me, the playoffs hinder that more than it helps that because it's short-sighted. I think whether you make the playoffs or not, you're still gonna need a long-term quarterback answer. And you're still gonna need other positions solidified like center or other premium positions that right now are question marks. And they will probably be question marks whether the team makes the playoffs or not. And finally, I I haven't heard this often, but the final thing that I feel like is not a key to success, that people have insinuated is a key to success, is to win week one. And I get it. It would be awesome if a Drew Locke or Geno Smith-led Seahawks team could beat Russell Wilson at Lumen Field. It would be absolutely incredible. But I just don't think, I don't think that's likely. I don't not only do I think it's likely I don't think it proves anything, I think it's purely entertainment value very well if the Seahawks won, sure it'd say f u Russell Wilson right like it'd say that and it'd stick it to', them. but other than that, the Broncos are still likely to make the playoffs and maybe even make a run. And the Seahawks are probably still not. It doesn't really change anything about the trajectory of the team. I don't think it says anything about if it was the right decision to let Russell Wilson go or not. I don't think it was the right. I don't think it speaks to if it was better to pick Pete or pick Russ. I think it's still too short of a time frame to really determine that. I think it's probably equal to not equal, but a little bit under what it was for Tom Brady when he returned to the Patriots with his first game it didn't say that Mike that Mac Jones even though he lost it didn't say that Mac Jones was better it didn't say that Bill Belichick was better because ultimately Tom Brady won the Super Bowl it wasn't meaningful at all it was purely entertainment and I'm all here for entertainment so I'm not here to bust a bubble I'm gonna eat up all the entertainment it's gonna be great I'm excited about it but I just want people to Keep expectations for it. It's fun if we win. It's probably still going to be a good game to watch, even if we don't, even if the team doesn't win, win or lose. It's entertainment, and it's absolutely nothing more. It is not a key to success. I've, I've even heard on Good Morning Football, it was one of the keys to success that they had. The Seahawks must win week one to give momentum and, and set culture. no. <laughs> the Seahawks do not have to win week one to set culture. Pete Carroll is going to do plenty of that. They do not. That is not the way that things have to go. They Nothing happens if they win and nothing happens if they lose in terms of expectations for either team. In fact, I don't think anybody really thinks that it's going to be a good game from a back and forth perspective. I just think people are interested in seeing the emotional aspects of it, the sentimental value of it. And that's really about it. I think it has more emotional value than it does football insight. And so because of that, again, it's going to be fun, but it is not a key to success. The season is not doomed if the Seahawks lose week one. I still have the utmost utmost belief in this team's ability to be able to break the very low expectations that people have for this team. And I think they're going to prove some people wrong this year. So anyway, that's all the time we have for today. You can find me on Twitter at H 901 That's H 901 Please be sure to follow the page, Ethos Seahawks, for updates on podcasts, analysis, uh, polls, and more. We hope that you'll leave a review and share with your friends. On our next episode, we'll break down training camp. Training camp will be here, so a lot to get into with that. Be sure to join us on the next episode of Seahawks 360. That's all I got. And as always, Go Hawks!